Hello, and welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. I'm so glad that you are here, and I know what you're thinking. What you're thinking is, who the hell is Sanjay Rawal? And I just want to validate that question. That is totally okay that you think that. Sanjay Rawal is the director of a film called 3100, and this film is insane. It's crazy. I I highly recommend that you check it out. The 3100 is a race that's held every year in New York City, and it is crazy. Basically, it requires the participants to run 60 miles a day for 52 days in order to complete the race. That's the requirement. 60 miles a day. That's like two marathons at least every single day for 50 days. For those of you who use the metric system, that is like 100 kilometers a day of running. And to make it even weirder and wilder, they have to run around a single block in New York. So they basically just run around a circle all damn day for 50 days. It's crazy. It's a beautiful film, though, because it's not necessarily about running. It's about the process of overcoming adversity. It's about transformation. It's about metamorphosis. And it's about the mindset required to do difficult things, to overcome adversity. And Sanjay is a really fascinating dude. And you will see from about minute three and onward, maybe minute one, this dude is really smart. He is super intelligent, very thoughtful. He has the biggest, kindest heart. I really just adored our conversation. I think he is wonderful. And at some point in our chat, I had this realization that like, holy shit, I need to turn on the afterburners of my mind to try to keep up with this dude because we get deep. We talk about philosophy and religion. We talk about truth and objectivity and all kinds of wild things. It's a very, very stimulating conversation. I hope that you love it. And do check out his film. It's on Amazon and all the places. It's called 3100. It is really mind-blowing, a very unique cinematic experience. Without further ado, I present to you Sanjay Rawal. Oh shit, but first, I do have to warn you that there were a little bit of technological hiccups in recording this episode, so there's going to be some spots where the internet sort of dropped out during our chat, and it's going to be a little bit of poor quality. But these are few and far between. It gets better after the first 10 minutes or so, and then you'll, you'll figure it out. Okay, now, without further ado, Sanjay Rual. All right, Sanjay Rual. Welcome to the podcast. Sir, my friend, my brother, it's great to be here. I'm so stoked to talk to you because I recently had the pleasure of watching your newest movie. I guess you've made a few now. Uh, your newest movie called 3100, which is on its surface all about running. But the movie is really beautiful, man. And it's really tender and soft. And it's also philosophical in many ways. And, um, and so I just thought that we would start there with um, a little brief discussion so people can be aware of the film and then we can just see where that goes. I've been making documentary films just for about 10 years now. 
And the latest film um, was a, a deeply personal one uh, called 3100 Run and Become. Um, I'm not a, a multi-day ultra-distance runner myself, but the film is about the world's longest running race, which is just 3,100 miles. And curiously enough, it takes place around a single half-mile loop in Queens, New York City every summer. People have to average about 59 miles a day across the 52-day window. And it's unfathomable from a physical standpoint. But most of what I try my, my very, very level best to do is explore the use of consciousness and the, the idea of inner peace being a source of outer strength or outer power, um, inner willpower being much more important and much more fluid if it comes from love and from joy. And this particular run was started by my own spiritual teacher, Sri Chinmoy. And even though it's, it, it can be considered a, an extreme feat of physical fitness, it's not possible at all without faith. And so the film explores that from that race and from traditional running backgrounds, like from the Navajo, the Kalahari Bushmen, and uh, an esoteric group of Japanese monks. Yeah, and, and your description, I think, uh, is beautiful and eloquent. And just to add my own take on that, probably 10 different times during the film, I uttered some form of profanity, as in, whoa, or oh my effing God, or what the hell. Because these humans, they run around a block for a minimum of 12 hours a day for 50 days, something like this. Did I get that right? right? 60 miles a day? Pretty much. It's crazy. You know, that, that's what I, I thought, first of all. But then you start wondering if, and I'm, I'm saying, I'm, I'm using the word literally, if, if someone were, in fact, crazy, yeah. could they do this activity? <laughs> and no, they couldn't. Yeah. So it's not coming out of even like sheer mental willpower. Like, what is the source of power that enables something that seems impossible? Mm. At the same time, a crazy person would do it and get no satisfaction and might destroy herself for himself. But in order for a sane person to attempt a run like this, they have to enjoy it. So what state of mind, what state of consciousness do you need to be in to enjoy 59 miles on a sidewalk? In a perpetual loop. On repeat. In a perpetual loop. <laughs> you know, on the surface, it seems like people would, would rather run across the United States, like from San Francisco to New York. Yeah. And, and that, that is a specific type of, um, of endurance feat. But mm. people who've done those races or those runs from point to point have had trouble getting aid, the 10,000, 12,000 calories they need when they need it. You, know, they have, they, you can't just go to the restroom off the side of a road. Um, you have to avoid cars and you have to deal with a lot of logistics. Yeah. One of the reasons why this race is on, the, is on a loop is to enable people to go into a flow and not have to worry about the physical necessities because those are there. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense now that you explain it that way. And one thing I did love in your film is there was some section that talked about running as prayer. Was that, was that the, the Navajo guy that, that or the or the japanese dude because then that so 
anyway, I'm trying to explain this for people that haven't seen the film yet. So there's kind of like three or four different plots that interweave throughout the, the main plot line of the 3,100 mile race. And there's the, the Navajo ultramarathon, or how, maybe do you mind just filling in the, the various plot lines? Because then you had the Japanese dude that walked for a sure. thousand days straight. So I, I, if I just made a film about this race around the block, it would have been perhaps the most boring film <laughs> in the world. And at the same time, I didn't, I didn't want to stop runners and interview them. So there's no interviews in the entire movie. Yeah. But I wanted to show how this was possible. And so we went to three parts of the world where running is still practiced as a spiritual practice. Now, 500 or 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 years ago, all human beings ran. And the common evolutionary biology approach is that we ran for our food. But when you find these cultures, the few that still run in that traditional way, the Navajo, for example, running is a prayer. They say, when you run, your feet are praying to Mother Earth. You're breathing in Father Sky. You're asking them for their blessings to become a better person. And our main character is a Navajo ultramarathoner named Sean Martin, who also works for a native running organization called Wings of America. We spent time with him, and that showed the reality that if you approach running, or even physical fitness, but particularly running, with the attitude of prayer, it mm. becomes an activity that turns you into a better person. You're not just going to have better legs or better abs or better circulation. You can transform yourself. Um, mm. And these are the simple arts of connecting to energetic forces beyond the physical that modern life has stripped away from practice. And so the yeah. second part, go ahead, sorry. No, I, I was just, I love that. It's almost the way that I saw the film was like a Trojan horse of sorts of like, yeah, it's a movie. Yeah, it's about running, but it's also, it has this really subtle philosophical undertone around uh, meditation, around presence, around dealing with adversity, around courageous mindset, etc. And I thought it was really well done in how you kind of humanize the endeavor or you humanize the, um, the people in the film in a really beautiful and tender way to, um, to capture exactly that. Of it, it, so the term that I use in my own world is embrace the suck, right? Of, you know, you're going to have your ups and downs in life, um, that Buddhist philosophy around suffering as being inevitable, um, and how we choose to respond to that or embrace that, I think, has a large influence in the quality of our life. And it sounds uh, I, like I agree. Some, some agreement with that. I, I totally agree. The, 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 the most kind of dynamic or shocking part of the movie is the time that we spent with the Japanese monks um, who come from the oldest group of uh, Buddhists in Japan outside of Kyoto. And like you alluded to, they pick one person every generation to do a thousand days of fast walking, running, um, and if people put their mathematics hats on, they are doing 10 times 100 days, 10 cycles. Each cycle has a unique daily mileage, beginning with 11 miles for the first 100 days. And by the time they get to the last, the 10th cycle of 100, they're doing 56 miles a day. Now, as you know, the caveat is that if the aspirant doesn't finish his or her daily miles, um, they have to take their own lives. 
And so this is the idea of, of this is like embrace the suck squared. Because <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're thinking about the consequence, you don't have the energy to mm. do the challenge. So the question is, do you want to be in the mind where you're constantly dividing your, your, your quest up into segments, you're, you're rationalizing, you're trying to, to develop willpower, or do you want to be in your heart where everything mm -hmm. is joyful and blissful and it's a flow and you allow the universe or the supreme or God to miraculously take you from point to point and it becomes less of a point-to-point -point quest than it does an experience of spiritual transcendence. It's so deep, man. I, I love that so much. And yeah, just to reiterate to those listening, yes, this human walks a thousand days straight. The last 100 days is 56 miles a day, you said, which is essentially two marathons a day. And if they don't complete that task, they have to kill themselves. That's correct. And it's been going on for 1,500 years now. And again, it's like, it's, extreme's not even the right word. And from a Western standpoint, you wonder why somebody would be, quote, suicidal. Mm. But the way the monks put it is the preparation is done well before you so-called toe the line. You know, you have to have the highest level of commitment to even begin this effort. And once you have that highest level of commitment, you realize that the task is already completed in the inner world. You're just going through the outer motion of something that's already been accomplished. Yeah, and it starts with mindset is the idea. And so it's kind of like if you accept and embrace the task at hand and you visualize and you um, are prepared for the suck, to continue my ridiculous analogy or metaphor or whatever that is, if you're prepared for the suck and you embrace the suck, then you're not necessarily concerned about the, the suicide or the failure because you're so present in the moment that it's not part of the task at hand in a way. That, that, that's correct. And, you know, it, it's... It's tough for us, and I'm 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 very very much you know American, even though I'm I'm from an, an East Indian background. It's very difficult in the West for us to accept this idea of surrender. Mm. Now we we are we're told we're taught the idea is reinforced that like you know we're an army of one. It's like you are your own guru, and all this like BS mm. from the Eastern standpoint the idea of life is the one returning to the many. You know, what they, they say allegorically, like when a, when a drop falls into the ocean, it retains its individuality as a drop, but it can then identify with the consciousness of the entire ocean. Mm. And so in, in, in this sense, it's not looking at ourselves as the actors. Um, it's the idea of trying to become a mere instrument. And it's, it's almost contradictory where you say like, I won't be able to reach the goal unless I give up the idea of reaching the goal itself and surrender myself to the will of the highest. And yeah. from the, the standpoint of these Japanese monks, you know, you would say like, but if, if I surrender, you know, all of my expectations, I'm certainly not going to finish my daily miles. 
on the contrary, that's the only way to finish your daily miles. It's to understand that there's a force that loves us infinitely more than we love ourselves and to enter into that. And like a child holding on to their mother, you know, if a child is holding on to the mother, you know, the child can easily let go. But if the mother's holding on to the child, you know, we've all been in airports where moms are dragging kids along like a parquet floor. So that, that's, that's the concept here. Like surrender your ego, surrender your expectation, mm. and the result will be far greater than you could ever think it would be. Yes. It's such a paradox. And I deal with this with clients um, fairly often of trying to get this point across that life, at least in my perspective, and this may change in a few years, and I'll look back and think how naive I was. But as far as I can tell now, life is about setting a goal of some kind, setting a target of some kind, and moving towards it as a motivator or some kind of a, um, a beneficial sort of drive, um, while also releasing entirely the need to ever get there, to ever be a certain version of myself, to ever accomplish, to ever succeed, whatever that means. And in some ways, you, you must really uh, devote yourself towards walking that path and also release yourself from ever getting to where you want to go. And, and that becomes the game, at least, as I see it. I mean, it's like, you know very well that has its roots, you know, as far back as the Bhagavad Gita, and the kind of Hindu epic of Krishna and Arjuna on the battlefield of life. Ultimately, Krishna tells Arjuna, you have the right to act, but not to the fruits thereof. It's your dharma, it's your mission. You know, you cannot, it's like you're going to get, a, you're, you're going to get satisfaction mm. by acting, by, by doing the activity, but you'll get more satisfaction by relinquishing the idea of what the result might be. You know, it can be in the form of failure or success, a journey forward or a journey backward. But yeah. it's the idea, like we, we make it into a Hallmark card. You know, it's like the journey <laughs> is the destination. Yes. You know, like what, what you said is a much more eloquent, constructive way of, of, of explaining that. Thank you. Yeah. And so going back to that Japanese monk, this dude has to, I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he kind of has to release the fear of death and the fear of failure entirely or else that sort of anxious energy will just corrode and eat him away he won't actually accomplish the thing and so in that way his fear of death will actually lead to the death more so than um if you relinquish the fear of death then the death actually is probably uh, you have a greater chance of not experiencing that thing i i think that's that's a great way of putting it it's 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 as if somebody said to us, like, you have two weeks to learn Swahili. <laughs> like, wh okay. like wh 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 what are you going to do? It's like, we don't know anything. I'm just, mm -hmm. maybe you do know Swahili, but we don't know anything about Swahili. We don't even know what it means to learn Swahili. Yeah. But it's like, the only thing you can do is like, turn the first page mm. and then turn the second page. And if it's the will of the Supreme to carry you to that final goal, so be it. But you're going to do everything not just to, to, to move in that direction, but, you know, it's like if you're trying to learn Swahili, you can't sweat it out every single page. You actually have mm. to focus, concentrate, and find a way to derive joy. Derive joy in the, in the mundane kind of daily existence of 
learning Swahili, which is doing something hard or doing something that you've never done before. But see, that's the crux. It's like, it's not mundane. It's not hard. It's yeah. like going around the block, you know, for 60 miles a day for 52 days. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, even block by block or half mile loop by half mile loop, you're dead. Right. You know, if you think about it step by step, you're dead. You can't use your mind to divide the subject. You have to find joy and that joy will carry you from moment to moment, from step to step. And it'll carry you and propel you in a much faster way than the mind can. Yeah, and I'm reminded that early in that film, the um, the main dude from Finland with the long name, Ara, whatever, Aras Pagashner, or... Yeah, Ashprihanal. Ashprihanal, yeah. He says, he's talking to the other dude in his bunk, and he, and he says, you know, people think it's about vitamins or calories or intake, but it's about making the race a meditation, was his advice. Did I get that right? Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's exactly right, you know. And, and, and you know, we, we spend time in that film with the Kalahari Bushmen, you know, that, a, a tribe in Botswana that has lived pretty much, until the last 15, 20 years, pretty much unperturbed for 125,000 years. And scientists say that, you know, our, each person's, like, primary ancestor isn't a Bushman, necessarily, but we all have unique markers in our DNA that could have only come from Bushmen. So the Bushmen, you know, they spread out and we are all related to that tribe. That said, they live the most simple existence. You know, they chase their prey, they chase their their food down over the course of days. And, you know, they, they scare these large elk away from water and after two days, the elk and, and or other type of, of, of prey are too dehydrated to, to outrun, you know, these scrawny human beings and they're much easier to kill. And then you kill them and then the village moves to where that kill is. And you, you, you think of that as um, a primitive way of living. But the Bushman said the only way that these types of hunts are possible is if you surrender your expectation and you try to become entirely one with Mother Earth. And it's not just the idea of like grounding your feet in the <laughs> yeah. electromagnetic mumbo jumbo. It's the idea of like there's something complex moving and there's multiple dimensions, time, space, you know, uh, other things that are out of your control. And how do you sync up all these uncontrollable variables so that the end result is you catching this animal to allow your village to survive? Mm. The idea is to turn it into a prayer. You know, when you're praying, that prayer doesn't change until the goal is reached. You know, all the outer circumstances might change, but you're holding fast to that prayer and using that prayer as a way to connect to a much higher energy. And that's what the Bushmen say they do. You know, they pray to their ancestors, they pray to Mother Earth, and that prayer literally turns into their ability to track the animal, to hide from the animal, to chase it away from watering holes. It's intuitive strength and it's physical strength to be able to do this for two days. That's, and so they're not, they're not bringing energy gels, you know, they're not like worried yeah, there's about- There's no crystals like, that they're, no. right? And, and no they're, incense or they're not saging the landscape before they go for a hunt. No, so it, it, it's, it's not- you know, there, there's no formality, there's no ceremony around mm-hmm. it. It's the idea of surrendering all of your expectations, 
you know, you have the idea of a goal um, and you'd like to get there, but you know that it's not within your power to get there. You mm -hmm. have to become an instrument. Yeah, and I think you touched on something quite fascinating, which is that we all, each of us, have in our DNA some of their DNA. We started there. And I think that in our modern times, in our hyper-connected technological experience called life, we forget that we are just animals and that we, for billions of years, evolved as part of this wondrous mystical landscape called the universe. And, um, and that there's something mystical at play about that, that I don't know how you necessarily describe that, but there's, there's something going on that we can't necessarily define or describe. And I think we've kind of lost that under the guise of civilization or modern society or whatever you want to call it. But I think it's powerful then to, to have footage like that and to have experiences from those indigenous cultures to sort of nudge us out of our comfort, uh, our comfortable shell, so to speak, and, and sort of, at least this is how I took it, obviously, um, and be like, oh yeah, I'm an evolved monkey. Um, oh yeah, I used to have to hunt for my food, not that long ago, evolutionarily. Oh yeah, maybe, maybe there is some kind of energetic experience that I can tap into time and again, or some kind of uh, primal uh, communication with the divine that I, don't necessarily use anymore. I, I, I love it. And, and this sounds ridiculous, what I'm, what I'm about to say, but like <laughs> that, that primal way of tapping into the divine is running, walking, dancing. It's like what makes us human beings mm -hmm. is the fact that we can move on two feet and that unlike a quadruped, like you can imagine a horse extending you know, when the horse extends, that's the only time for its lungs to fill with air. It mm. can't dissociate its breathing from its movement. And therefore, it can't make its movement meditative. You know, we mm. are the only creatures, just by virtue of being bipedal, that can separate the idea of breathing from motion. And so it boils down to literally what Sean Martin, the Navajo marathoner, says. He says, when you run, you're praying to Mother Earth with your feet. You are breathing in Father Sky. Running, walking, traditional dancing is a way that you connect your consciousness, you know, from the, literally from the earth to the heavens, from, from Mother Earth and, and the inner worlds. Like that is what makes us animals, and that's what makes us divine animals. Now, mm. obviously, you know, you can build contemplative practices that are much deeper. But that root practice is through our feet. Mm. How, how has that influenced the way that you live your own life in terms of um, is movement now a non-negotiable, for example? So I, I, was, I was a runner in high school and, and the competitive runner for a little bit around, you know, in my, my teens and, and, and so on. And I hated it. You know, it's <laughs> because like when, when, you're at, when you're in competition like that, it's all about placement. Mm. And it, even though I, I moved to New York City to study with Sri Chinmoy, and he was, you know, very much a part of the nexus of the movement to integrate like the inner spirituality with physical fitness. It wasn't until I started this movie, started filming it a few years back, that it all really began to make sense. And I realized that like physical activity is meant to make you a better person. 
It's mm. not meant simply for health or for enjoyment or for relaxation. I mean, you can do it for all those things, but you, I mean, you're an expert in this. It's like that the result is going to be dependent on your intention. Mm. You know, very rarely are we going to experience like a miracle, you know, but it's like, if you go into an activity, you know, hoping for a miracle, then that you probably get a miracle out of it. Right. And it's like if you look at running, if you take off your your iPod or unplug your your AirPods and don't look at it as though you're trying to do a set number of miles, you know, don't start thinking about what you're going to do afterwards, what you're going to eat, like how you're going to sleep. You know, like you said earlier, like use your contemplative practices to be in the moment and mm-hmm. really understand what it means to to pray to Mother Earth with your feet, to breathe in Father Sky. And use running with the specific idea of, of transforming yourself. And weirdly enough, it's like that's what the activity was meant for. And mm. that's totally changed the way I, I look at running. And it's just been the last couple of years. Yeah. I had similar revelations. Um, so last year I did the Camino in Spain. And I walked. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I walked from France to the ocean over uh, like 1,000 kilometers, 33 yeah. days. And um I was having a little bit of a flashback moment now and again, watching your film about the, the, um, the monotony, so to speak, of, of day in and day out doing something difficult. And then you cut to this scene where it's pouring rain and these, these guys are wandering through the pouring rain. And I was, I was definitely triggered a little bit when I was having my memories back in Spain. But um, what I learned from that experience was an inner resilience that... I, that I hadn't fully realized until I put myself in a position in which I committed to doing this difficult thing day in and day out. And so for me, it was, you know, you wake up and I knew that I had to walk, you know, 25 kilometers the next day and it's pouring rain and my socks and my shoes are wet and I want nothing more than to not do the thing that I'm about to do. And nonetheless, I pack my bag and get my buddies and we put on our little rain gear and we trudge off into the, into the soaking wet environment and we do the thing. And I found that the commitment to that daily endeavor did a number on my, my soul, on my spirit, on my, on my mentality, however you want to describe it. But at the end of that 33 days, there was, I had a heightened sense of what I was capable of doing. And I, felt stronger at, at like a really profound, like deep core level. And I kind of saw myself in a different light of, oh, I can do hard things or I do the things that I say I'm going to do. And as part of that process, for me at least, you have day after day after day and you get lost in your head. And so it's that um, what you described of making it a meditation, making it a prayer, staying present, not worrying about how far you've come or how far you have to go, but just be here now, like Ram Dass. Like, one step after the other. I mean, I, I, I love it because you, you've you really hit on something. Okay. Um, human, human beings have always realized that there are specific places on the, the surface of Mother Earth that have more power uh, than others. And mm. the earliest form of extreme physical fitness that everybody, young, old, skinny, fat, whatever, had to undertake were pilgrimages. Mm. And this idea of moving with purpose 
to an end goal, to a sacred site. The idea of going long distances with the divine in mind, you know, isn't just about the destination. You're undergoing spiritual practice and the idea of transformation even along the journey. And there have been many cases where either people have come to the end goal, whether it's a cave or a church, and had a mystical experience, or had no experience, turned around, went back home, and realized that they were completely different people yes. when, they, when they went back home. I mean, it's been an essential part of human, human spiritual evolution. And like you said, it's almost like we look at those things as like once in a lifetime you know, yeah. duties or journeys, whereas back in the day, it would be, you know, once a year. Yeah, it was just normal, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, I thought that too. So when I first started, um, my ego was, was really fired up. Like, I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to see the church in Santiago. That's the end goal. Uh, it's going to be great and blah, blah, blah. And literally, Sanjay, on the second day, my my calves were, were on fire. I was, my body was wrecked from, from the first day alone. And I suddenly was confronted with this idea of failure or what I considered failure at the time, which was, oh, maybe I won't finish this walk or maybe something happens along the walk and I have to leave and go attend to some business back home or you know, somebody gets sick or blah, blah, blah. And those moments were very interesting because I had to um, similar to, I guess, the Japanese monk confronting his death. Like, it's a much more extreme version. But for me, it was confronting the death of a, a dream or the death of an expectation, the death of an outcome, and recognizing that I really couldn't control of all of these variety of things that I was worried about that might, maybe, influence whether or not I did this thing. And it really forced me to get present and release the idea of actually getting to Santiago, which was my end goal, and just be okay with however it goes, right? If, like, if I don't finish, cool. If I trip and break my knee and have to go to hospital, okay, I'm okay with that also. And in that moment, there was this kind of uh, calm release uh, of uh, peace or surrender, I guess, as you would say, of like, I'm cool. I'm cool with whatever. And so, of course, as we said at the beginning, I made it to Santiago because partially, I believe, I had released the need to get there. Exactly. And the funny thing is, like, as a society, we've, we've like, diluted the idea of pilgrimages into the concept of taking road trips. <laughs> yeah. Right? So it's like, like, we used to take a thousand-mile journey by foot to yeah. Santiago. And now we're like piling in the car and going to like Coachella. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to have a different kind of experience entirely. Yeah, but it's like, I'm not saying that in a bad way, but it's like, you know, if, you, if like people go on road trips to like, mm. to like melt into the surroundings, to have a series of experiences that transform and that uplift and they, you know, you mm. pick an inspiring destination, whether it's Coachella or the Grand Canyon, like, yes. you know, with all like respect to like Akron, Ohio, there aren't very many people like <laughs> taking a road trip to Akron. Um, but, but like you said, we, we learn things along the way. Mm. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just interesting to kind of hear 
hear your experiences and realize that we've probably been having these experiences for tens of thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, precisely. I just really think there's some core human drive for, um, for spontaneity or for adventure or for newness. Um, and I think that there's something to be said about the excitement of not knowing what's around the corner or what the day might hold or who you're going to be at the end of the day. But like, you know, I, I have a question for you. Like what, what, when mm. you go on a pilgrimage yeah. or even if someone goes on a road trip, you know, the expectation is that you're either going to like forget about some sort of trauma that's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, forget about a relationship. Forget about like the loss of a, of a friend or a job. But you, you do it because you want to be transformed. And that's the goal of the 3,100 mile race. Like mm-hmm. in, in the film, one of the race directors says, you know, kind of like tongue in cheek, this is the only race where that guarantees that, you know, what, you'll become a better person. Mm. And it's like, I, I, I think that's an interesting intention to really put first and foremost in these types of activities. Like I want to do a mundane activity like driving, you know, up, lift up Akron, like driving to Akron, Ohio. Yeah. But I, I, I'm not going to do it just to get there. You know, I want to be in the frame of mind that so that like I transcend any problems I have or I become a much better version of myself. Yeah, exactly. And that's one thing when I was on the Camino last year, I, my question for people was uh, like, what are you running from? I would say that to people because most everybody that decides to walk across Spain has some kind of a uh, transition going on in their life, whether they just broke up with their partner or they're about to get married or they quit a job or they just got hired for a job. Everybody's got some kind of a story as to, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And it was really fascinating to see all of the different ways that all of these different people from all of these different countries could end up on this dirt track in the Spanish countryside and how unifying that was at a, at a sort of a core level that despite all of our overt differences, when it got down to it, we were all kind of seeking, seeking the other, so to speak. Um, and not necessarily knowing what it was or how to describe it, or even if we would get there, but there was just some kind of, it's a, it's a quest of sorts of like, let's just see what else is out there. Let's see who I am at the end of this or just how this will go. Yeah. Isn't that a great idea to bring into day-to-day life? Instead of Absolutely. saying, like, I'm, I'm going to do my nine-to-five, work 40, 50, 60 hours a week, you know, take two weeks of vacation, have a kid once every three years or, or whatever. It's like to have the idea, the concept of the, the, that we're all seekers. Yeah. You know, we're all on a path to seeking the divine or seeking an ultimate goal of, of happiness or, you know, joy or bliss. And looking at every single activity with that mindset. And I, I think that's the idea of what the monk is doing, what the 3,100 mile runners are doing. It's mm. like the activity life itself is pretty boring, you yeah. know, but it's like, if you're getting something exotic <laughs> or I- incredible out of it, if you're feeling, you know, if your feelings expand and transcend themselves, that's satisfaction. And that mm. can come from the most mundane set of circumstances, mm. but it comes entirely from, from wanting to seek, from actually having aspiration in yeah. general to be a better version of yourself. 
I totally agree with that. And I think even to expand on that, I feel like at the root of that seeking is, uh, is discomfort. So, and what I mean is when we chase the uncomfortable, whether that's in conversation or vulnerability or physical endeavors, I feel like the putting ourselves in an uncomfortable place often leads to those breakthroughs that we seek. And I feel like we're often in our society or our culture, we're chasing comfortable transformations, whether that's through narcotics or Netflix or Coachella. Uh, and it's challenging for individuals to put themselves into a position to, to literally be uncomfortable. I mean, that, that's, that's both painful to hear because it's true. Um, <laughs> Because it also applies to me, but it, it, it's, it's an oxymoron, right? Mm. Because comfort and transformation, they don't go together mm. at all. You can't have transformation through comfort. And it doesn't mean, like you said, literally, like you, you can't like, you have to sit on like, or wear like a, a you know, a, a suit of like chain mail. You can sit on a comfortable couch. Mm. It's the idea of discarding lethargy. Um, mm. discarding this, this like desire for stasis. Um, and this idea that if you bought something or if you, you win something, it's going to be the end of all your problems. Like yeah. transformation doesn't exist in Netflix. It doesn't exist in that. <laughs> I love that. I love I, mean, I watch a lot of Netflix, but it doesn't yeah. exist in that, in that two hours, mm. you know, you're not going to get transformed. It's like transformation is going to come out of, like you said, determination, sheer mm. willpower, putting your mind into a very uncomfortable position. Mm. Yeah. And you don't even need money or travel or anything to experience that as all you need is like your eyes closed and sit down somewhere. And if you do that for long enough, you're going to be very uncomfortable and you're going to be very confronted by what is happening inside your own head. Right. This is just simple meditation practice. And I try to get my clients to meditate when I, when I can. I encourage that simply for that reason. Like get uncomfortable more often and you become somebody who is uh, much more comfortable in life when the discomfort finds you inevitably. But for you, what, what do you think of, or like what pilgrimage are you currently on or how, what are you chasing that's uncomfortable at the moment, so to speak? You know, that, that's, that's a, a, a good question. I, I learned to meditate kind of on my own when I was in college, but by some stroke of luck, I realized very early on that the most essential thing for any spiritual practice was having a teacher, whether that teacher was in the physical or whether he or she was operating from the other worlds. And you know, the, the famous teachers, of course, are Jesus, the Buddha, Krishna, uh, folks like that. But there's mm. many masters whose names aren't popular or familiar and there's there are teachers that are physically present and so that motivated me to, to to move from california and come to new york city for a reason that most people don't come for and that's to find inner peace because um, my teacher sri chinmoy moved from india to new york city in the 60s um, with the express kind of intention or philosophy of teaching people how to find the highest peace in the, in the hustle and bustle of life. Mm. He felt in the 60s, and it's more acutely true now, 
that there was no place on earth you could actually go and be completely free from the vibration of the world. And now we know that that's, you know, infinitely more so because the vibration of the world is in our pockets. You know, it's mm. on the cell phones that connect us everywhere for good purposes and bad purposes. So my, 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 my teacher passed away in 2007, but at the same time, his community, myself included, quickly realized that the physical presence of a teacher is effectively a, a, a crutch. And hmm. if I was, if I had, was really, you know, in tune with his consciousness, that connection would exist far beyond the, the veil of death. Mm. And it wasn't just my own unique experience, but it was the experience of a lot of my, my, my spiritual brothers and sisters. And in that sense, you know, I, I, I feel like a child. Like I, I don't have goals. You know, I, I don't have this idea of wanting to be some like grown up with two cars and, you know, five houses or, or whatever. Um, you know, my, my, my goal is to just please my team. My, did I break up? Mm. Uh, yeah. Sorry, understanding that, you know, my devotion to my teacher is the surrender of my ego and mm. spiritual progress is made through humility. And ultimately we want to discard our limiting egos and realize the universality of our existence. Like realize that you are God, realize that you are the universe, you are the divine. And the easiest step is submitting that to another human being. In the West, it seems like the absolute antithesis of life. But in Eastern philosophy, you know, there are many, many kind of parables of people with, there's, there's one famous parable of, of, a, of a student whose teacher is a drunkard who does everything wrong, but the, t the student is so devoted to the teacher, you know, and so mm. devoted to the idea that the teacher is going to take her to the divine that Lord Shiva actually appears to the seeker and says, I'm here to give you the highest enlightenment. And the seeker says, no, I only want that from my teacher. And, and she knows it's Lord Shiva. And she says, like, get out of here. Like, you're not my teacher. And then Shiva says, well, you, you're, you're so you know, disciplined. You meditate so well. Let me, let, me, let me give you something. And the seeker says, I don't want anything from you. And then Shiva finally realizes, well, Shiva says, what, what do you want? And then the seeker says, I want to receive enlightenment from my teacher, this drunkard. And so Shiva, in order to give enlightenment to this great seeker, gives it to the teacher. So the teacher then gives it to the student. And we look at that as the craziest thing from a Western standpoint. <laughs> but at the same time, spiritual masters joke when people ask them, has anybody become enlightenment, enlightened without a teacher? they pretty much all say, yeah, well, the first person to reach enlightenment didn't have a teacher. Mm. And that's their way of saying the only human being that reached enlightenment without a teacher was that first person. Mm. Like you cannot get to that uncomfortable but most beautiful of goals on your own. Mm. And so for you, how did you know that, he, that this man was your teacher, so to speak, when you found him? Sri Chanroy? How do you say his name? Sri Chinmoy. Sri Chinmoy. Yeah. What, what was yes. it about him that spoke to you? 
I, I had gone to various spiritual groups. Um, and I, 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 grew, I grew up in Oakland and Berkeley, California. So like every spiritual path <laughs> on earth has a, a center in Berkeley. And yeah. I, I pretty much went to all of them. Um, and I didn't know how to find my teacher, but it's one of those things that once you find your teacher, you'd know. Mm. Um, I mean, and people can look at that in terms of many major life decisions. Like if, you're, if you really want to study theoretical physics, you know that there's only a handful of schools that you can go to in order to really learn that subject. Mm. And you might read the, the works of eight to 10 of the people that are really teaching that. And you'll pick one and say like, that's the person I want to learn from. And you'll know it, you know, you'll know what your goals are and you'll get a feeling. Um, here, when, when somebody finds their teacher, that feeling is infinitely deeper. But it's like, but like we said, if, if, if the intention is not to find your teacher, if the intention is to be your own teacher, mm. you know, and, and to like try to find the guru within, it's never gonna happen. Mm. It's never gonna happen. And it doesn't mean that our teachers all have to be like at the height of, of Jesus or Buddha. Um, you call your students your clients, but mm. that's the relationship. It's like, mm. if they didn't have the most basic level of obedience, and every time they asked you for advice, they refused to take that advice. Well, then the relationship is not good for either of you. Um, mm. But at the same time, they're not coming to you to disobey. They're, mm. they're coming to obey. I mean, that's the first step. And the last step is this idea of surrendering one's ego to the universe. But the very first step is obedience. Mm. And most people, no harm, no foul. It's, it's all an a very good step, but most people who look at their spiritual life as based just on a phone app, mm. they're not going to get that far. Mm. You know, it's like you're not your teacher. Your phone is not your teacher. You need somebody to tell you the hard truth, like you said, to put you into an uncomfortable place from time to time. Mm. Tough love, right? Yeah. It's like we say there's justice and there's compassion. Compassion <laughs> is like cakes and puppies and rainbows and you need it mm. you know justice is like slapping you on the backside and saying like move faster if you're a runner yeah i heard i heard that expression a while ago uh something like sometimes compassion is a is a smack in the head or something like this of like if it's if it's rooted in care and concern that sometimes we need to be sort of shaken up a little bit. And I'm not advocating for violence or anything like that, but um, I think from that philosophy, at least, it helps me to understand when, when things happen in my own life that are what I perceive to be wrong or unjust or not how it's supposed to be, I think um, that kind of philosophical slant helps me to derive the deeper meaning or the lesson or the... Um, the opportunity, I suppose, to get curious, to grow, to expand, to evolve, et cetera. I mean, taking, to, taking into account that some of the listeners may have had really crappy parents um, mm. and like, you know, you know, just bowing to that. Um, but the ideal, you know, example of a good mother or father is not always rewarding a kid with a piece of candy. It's like, there are scoldings, you mm. know, there's, you know, like, you're standing in a corner, you know, in some traditions, it's, there's corporal punishment, you know, there's, there's discipline. Mm. The, the parent's goal is to turn you into an adult and, and, and keep you alive, but turn you into a good functioning adult. 
and, and that's why we, that's why we, we we go to teachers. Like you go to a teacher yeah. because you can't understand the the theoretical physics in a book. Mm. You need somebody to really explain what's between the lines and give you personal advice. You can't learn to you can't become a spiritual expert, you know, just through a book or through an app. You you need somebody to literally help you feel between the lines. Mm. And so how do you, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm curious about um, how you would advise people to, um, n- not necessarily to follow their heart or to trust their intuition, but um, to get out of their head and more into their bodies. Because I, I hear this from people often of, they can't quiet their mind. They can't, um, they're anxious all the time. They don't know what they want to do with their, their life. And oftentimes I'm, trying to assist them with getting still and listen to what I call the heart whispers of like the, the sort of the deeper knowing, but I'm intrigued if you have any sort of feedback or ideas around that. I, I, I think that's like the age old question. You know, we, it's, it's interesting because the, the like Western spirituality or Western religion is very much prayer based. You know, in, in, in the West, we, we tend to disregard prayer when we start meditating Mm. Um, at the same time, like we've all had experiences, whether or not we, we direct prayers towards Jesus or Buddha or Krishna, we've all had really intense periods in our life. Like even walking to Santiago where you're probably, please let this cramp go away. Mm. You're praying to something greater than your ego. And we can call that your soul. We can call that God or anything in between, but it's that idea of spending some time each day really intensely praying for the will of the universe, the will of God, the will of the Supreme to be done through you. Um, and mm. so it's, it's not just this idea of like, like trying to quiet your mind and then struggling with the idea of making your mind passive when it doesn't always want to be. It's the mm. idea of saying, well, if the mind wants to talk, let me focus it. Let me pray intensely. Let me, re- you know, and sometimes that can take the form of repeating prayers that are, are deeper than, than foreign language mantras, but like tried and true prayers and really using that energy of, of desire in a good way. Yeah, I love that. And one way that I look at that is um, as a measure of control in a way of managing what you cannot control, which is virtually everything and managing the thing that you can control, which is your consciousness or your conscious decision to focus on a single thought at a particular time. Right. And yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. And you know, but we're, we're all children of the divine Mm -hmm. and the more serious we take ourselves, the less happy we are. And, (laughs) You know, it's like we, we, yeah. we, come from, we come from a being, from an energy, from a consciousness that's all love. Mm. And that consciousness is crying for us to come back to it. Mm. And like, you know, a while ago, we, I kind of gave the symbol of, of, a, of a child holding, you know, his mother's finger or hand. You know, we, we ultimately want that hand to grab us. And, you know, we don't have the capacity to, to find the hand, you know, so to speak. And, you know, it's like, you know, we, we've got to take the attitude of like a lost child who cries and cries and cries. And, 
the mother might be in the other room, but when she hears the child crying, she drops whatever she does and comes and picks up the kid. And, and these aren't just parables, but these are ways to kind of, to, to symbolize, to, to give shape or form to how these universal energies work. Mm. It's not this idea of like just trying to open to this passive energy that exists within us. It's like we can pull it into us. We can pull it out of us. But it takes mm -hmm. that extreme discomfort, that extreme intensity of prayer in this example. Mm. And so for people listening who are, who are like, okay, this sounds great. I'm intrigued. I'm interested. I'm ready to get a little bit more uncomfortable. I'll, I'll dabble. What would you recommend they do as a, a starting point or a beginning? Um, I, 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 I leave it to you because you're, 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 the, you're, the, you're the expert. Um, I, I can say what, what I do. Yeah. You know, I, I know that I'm not an expert in, in any one thing. Mm. And so what I try to do is vary it up. Like I'll, I'll, I'll read a little bit each day um, and not like necessarily esoteric. I mean, everybody's, everybody's different, but I, I'm not so drawn to just esoteric philosophy. I like reading books of spiritual poetry. Hmm. Um, you know, like th there was a great Indian poet named Rabindranath Tagore from Bengal, and he actually won the Nobel Literature Prize like way back, like in the 1900s, uh, the early 1900s. And, um, you know, he wrote a lot of poetry, you know, specifically uh, of, of like a seeker crying to the divine or crying to their beloved. You know, Rumi, you know, mm -hmm. Hafiz, the Sufi mystics write that way. You know, Whitman, I think mm -hmm. it's Walt Whitman's birthday today, um, oh. writes, writes, you know, in, in that style from time to time, these, these ideas of just beseeching, you know, your divine beloved to come and, and you know, take you. Um, so I, I like reading poetry. I can't read too much of it. So I, you know, read 10 <laughs> to 20 pages a day at, at, at most. Um, I take my runs really seriously as, as a spiritual practice. And, you know, I'm not going to lie and say that the runs are easy and fluid and I'm connecting to Mother Earth and Father Sky at every minute. But I, I look at that physical activity to have another moment of extreme clarity. Just like one looks at their, their meditative practice, not necessarily for a half an hour or an hour of unbridled bliss every day, um, but for at least you know, a, a sequence of moments of deep, deep clarity and perspective. So I, I, I meditate, I, I, I read spiritual books, I run, and I sing. I'm not a great singer, but mm. that's another way that we've always connected with the divine. It's through song. It's through combining words with a deep well of emotion. Mm. So I try to sing a little, you know, I, I, there's a few spiritual songs that I really like that were written by, by, by my own teacher, Sri Chinmoy. And, you know, I, I try to sing those, you know, from time to time during the day. So it's, it's, it's more of an idea of creating a series of spiritual disciplines that I can come back to any time in the day, you know, in various situations, so that my practice isn't just something I do in the morning and in the evening, mm -hmm. or in moments of quiet, but that I can string them out 
throughout my entire day. I love that. It's, it's, it's similar language or similar ideas. The way I describe it is like a toolkit, right? Of you got your, your hammer, your screwdriver, your nails, your brew. I don't even know what's in a toolkit, but you got a whole bunch of things, right? And then at a specific time of day or a set of, uh, set of circumstances, you can kind of pause and say, okay, like, do I need to sing right now? Do I need to walk? Do I need to run? Do I need to meditate? Like, what's, what am I craving, so to speak? And then you've got these various tools that you can rely upon to help you, um, or not, maybe not help is the wrong word, but that you can, um, that you can lean on for support um, in your time of need. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, different people are of different mindsets. Like there are some people that just like the sheer energy of discipline. Mm. I, I'm, I'm, in, 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 I'm more in the other school of just trying to be in like a childlike consciousness. Um, <laughs> yeah. All the greatest like philosophical spiritual leaders, they're all silly and giggly and they all are just have so much fun, I feel. Because it's easier. <laughs> you know, it, it really is, and it's like I'm, 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 I'm not knocking our our Japanese monk characters in the film, mm. but it's like I'm not gonna, I, I, I would die the first day. Like I, I'm not gonna, I do a thousand days. Mm. You know, like I, I can't, like I don't want to have that kind of like sheer focus and sheer willpower. And their idea is like, you know, the ego is a net, and I'm gonna like grow bigger than it and rip it to shreds mm. my, my only hope is that like i want to <laughs> make myself small enough that like i fall through the hole <laughs> you know so that's like that. my attitude it's like if i just become insignificant and soft and tiny and totally dependent on the universe you know that's that's how i'm gonna have a chance yeah i totally agree man and the way that I do that is just simple perspective of like the world's billions of years old and we're flying around a flaming ball of fire in the sky. And in X amount of years, we're all going to be dead. And, uh, you know, when you zoom out far enough and then you think about the number of stars in the sky and the number of galaxies in the universe, and you get into billions and trillions of things we're we're sort of this wondrous little speck of insignificance in the cosmos and yet we have total power to mold this existence and this experience into whatever we want it to be and i think the paradox of both of those things smushed together is what can create conflict in us i i'm, I'm totally with you it's like everyone is on a path to ultimate happiness i mean that's the whole purpose of existence whether you're a plant or whether you're an insect or a mammal you know and a higher mammal like us mm -hmm. um but you know does what do you want to do you want to get to that goal slowly or quickly you mm -hmm. know obviously everyone who listens to your podcast wants to get there quickly and that's why we're not just trying to float through life we're trying to understand what our purposes. We're trying to understand what mm. this game is. We're trying to understand what the goal is and then ultimately what the path to get to that goal is. Mm. So it's this process of unfolding self-discovery um, that you know, will enable us to enjoy the journey a lot more than just kind of cruising along, you know, like you said, around 
this flaming ball of hydrogen. Yeah. And so how do you separate your own individual truth from the truth of your teacher, so to speak, or the, the, the dogma, so to speak, or the religiosity of various institutions, right? So I, I guess what I mean is I'm getting at the, the authenticity of ourselves individually and why we're here and what we're supposed to do and how we respond and react to our own lived experience versus the here's your 10-step program or here's your this is what the truth actually is or do this meditation. Is there a way that you found to balance those kind of things? I, I, I think it's, it's, it's in, in your description of our place in the universe. You know, we're extraordinarily insignificant beings. Mm. And, you know, everything that's happened in our past, it's dust. There's yeah. so many... There's Literally. So many, yeah. There, 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 there's so many bags that we're carrying that you could literally just drop. Mm. And, and so it's the self-awareness not to, to think of ourselves as special, you mm. know, as, as, we, as we relate to ourselves. Um, it's this idea of saying the only person or only entity that we're special to is the divine. That's mm. it. It's like nobody else, everybody, say everybody else is going to disappoint you. You know, the world is, dis- is, dis- is going to disappoint you. Your mind is going to disappoint you. Your body is going to disappoint you. But like, what experiences have you had where you felt that the energy loved you and was there for you and wanted you? Hmm. And that's the, that's the experience that we're trying to like expand through our meditation. Like that one sunset, that one glimpse of universal love, that one moment of peace we're trying to find that within ourselves figure out where it is within ourselves and expand the heck out of it and the good thing is that we know that even that process is fun you know it's like yeah the goal is out there of like ultimate enlightenment and yeah we'd like to get there but we don't even know what it is yeah you know? but we but, but we know what our experiences have been that have been good and by focusing on them and expanding them you know, that's, that's how we become happy. And there's really not much more to do. I, I, yeah, I just got this vision of going back to the, the road trip idea at the beginning of you know, part of the joy of a road trip is you don't actually know where you're going to eat, what you're going to see, where you're going, what the road looks like. You're kind of just totally present in the now. And I feel like that's a really good metaphor for what you're describing here. Just, just like, just enjoy the ride. If you don't enjoy the ride, like make a turn or get a new car, try something different. Like chase, chase your bliss. As cheesy and cliche exactly. as that sounds. And you're, you're a pro. You, you, you brought us back to the... I was good at tangents, Sanjay. And I, I started daydreaming about doing another road trip. Yeah, it, it, exactly. We, we take ourselves too seriously. Yeah. We take everything around us too seriously, which is okay if we if we took the divine really really seriously mm. you know it's like even when you look at political things like in global and i'm all for it but like you know climate change movements and so on and so forth it's like how how much of the action the the action or the interest is self-serving mm. how much of it is really because we have the most humble attitude towards mother earth yes you know does that fight 
make us angry and worse people or does that fight put us really in tune with the pain of mother earth mm. i love it man and and um and it's that it goes back to this perspective right we we have this idea that because of these artificially constructed lines on a map that we're different and that we have these different countries and we're all fighting and that we're all so um so unique and when you zoom out it's like hey we've got this one little sphere in this vast nothingness and we're we're kind of trashing it and we're not really taking care of it and maybe we should all do something around that and to me that seems like a very reasonable rational logical thing and it's interesting to watch from an environmental standpoint specifically that we can't really get unity around this concept and that we continue along this path of uh, destruction and despair, so to speak. Anyway, we're, we're going down the rabbit hole, Sanjay. Uh, it, 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 all, it, all, it all boils down to the idea of like recognizing that our relationship to the divine in terms of scale would, would necessitate humility. Mm. And and the idea of of realizing we are kind of all like nothing and nobody, but at the same time, we are sons of God. We are daughters of God. You know, we must mm. be even as her. We must be even as he. Um, and it's claiming our identity through our connection with with our source. Um, and that's it. You know, everything else comes and goes. Mm. I mean, there are things in, that are enjoyable, like, you know, I mean, the coming and goings of TV shows on Netflix, you know, they're yeah. enjoyable, but it's like, we have to have our eyes on the prize. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the idea of pleasure versus entertainment, right? Like, yeah, it's exactly. nice for now, but you know, it might be more pleasurable to, um, have clean air to breathe, for example. Yeah. <laughs> you get it. Um, so I'm, I'm conscious of time and life and um, I feel like we're moving towards the end here but I did want to know uh, like what are you working on now or next I'm, I'm intrigued by, uh, by how you find your projects what's the next sort of big thing you sinking your teeth into well I, 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 it's, it's kind of either to say it's a big thing I, I, I don't think anything I, I really do is that big of a, of, of a project um, they end up going, getting out of control, and that might be the, the, the kind of through line. But my, my first film was called Food Chains. It's, it was about farm worker rights, and a lot of people saw it, thankfully. Um, Eva Longoria produced it, Forrest Whitaker narrated it, and the movie we were talking about, 3100 Run and Become, is also available on Amazon, iTunes, anywhere where people download or watch movies. Um, I'm just wrapping up a film about the Native American food system called Gather. Uh, that'll come out sometime in 2020. Um, and, you know, the way filmmaking goes is the last two or three months of every project is always just a total, like, nuclear meltdown where you're spending 70 hours a week watching the same hour and 20-minute long thing over and over to make it as perfect as you possibly can mm. and i'm probably about three months with away from that period gather and uh, uh 2019 and august 6th people can go to at 3100 film or at scmt sri chinmoy marathon team new york at scmt ny 
on Instagram to start following the uh, ups and downs of this year's crop of runners. Um, eight participants are coming from around the world, seven men, one woman. There were two other women that were signed up, but they had to withdraw by virtue of injury. Um, so I'm just going to be hanging out on the course and uh, helping to support those runners, you know, achieve those goals of self-transcendence. I love that, man. Good for you. It's quite, have you ever considered doing the race? I have. I've, I've done races as long as six days and uh, I loved it. Like it's, it's just a question of, of trying to carve out 52 days <laughs> right. in plus my some, year. Plus some recovery time, I imagine. And I'm just not, I'm just not that organized. Like I'm so <laughs> I'm 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 hoping that like maybe 2021 by then I'll get my act together and yeah get and finish up all the stuff that needs finishing. I love it. And uh, if it's your path, it will unfold in that way, I suppose. Yeah. If not, I'm I'm out there eating ice cream with them and cheering <laughs> them on. And if any of your listeners want to come and see it, you know, if they look if they go to our Instagram account, they'll see the the location of the race geotagged. Awesome. And then where can people find you if they want to uh, get in touch? So I, I monitor the account at 3100 film and my own Instagram account is at Mr. MR Sanjay S A N J A Y. And my last initial R and uh, shoot me a message. I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good at re- responding and uh, just like connecting with people that way. And, mm. you know, hopefully if, if you have a chance to, just swing by New York anytime soon. It would be awesome, awesome, awesome to connect in person. I would, I would really love that. However, I am, um, I'm heading back to Spain to do another little walk out there. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's um, awesome. Yes, I, uh, I had my experience last year that we touched on, and about halfway through that, I had this sort of epiphany of, oh, wouldn't it be cool to um, get paid to do this? Like if this was my job and that little flight of uh, whimsy resulted in me creating a, what I call it a walking retreat. And so I, I launched and sold that out in two hours and I'm taking eight strangers um, on a 160 mile walk um, in July for 12 days. Uh, that sounds awesome <laughs> yeah Great. it's pretty surreal yeah and i've got one of my oldest friends i've i've recruited to um come along with us and hang out and document on photo and video and so we're gonna go for a wander but uh, in saying that i would love to uh i would love to meet you in in real life one day i appreciate the invite and uh, i'm sure it'll happen at some stage i mean it seems like that one of the, the threads between a lot of your guests is that they've all been to yoga barn in ubud <laughs> i have too so maybe you could organize like a yeah. podcast guest retreat that would be hilarious and amazing yeah i like that idea and yoga barn is a really good spot yeah i, li- I like it they're super yeah. cool very super nice cool. i actually screened 3100 the movie there oh. uh, last february I've gone to one of those movie nights at the yoga barn down the bottom. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Sanjay, for, for what you do and for who you are, man. I've been really, uh, I thought we were just going to talk about running and doing hard things. And this has been a real treat to, um, to sort of discover your intellect and humility. And um, I just have a lot of respect for, for what you're about. I love your energy. And thank you for creating amazing art.
that um, that you believe in, and that's really beautiful. And I think that's an important thing you're doing. You don't know how much that means to me. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Thank yeah. you. No, it's been a pleasure, man. And and keep me posted if you uh, oh. if you want to come back on talk about Gather next year. Oh yeah, uh, heck yeah, that'd be fun. Consider consider my podcast your your podcast. Yeah, anytime, man. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Isn't he so good? What an interesting man. And the film, honestly, it's really entertaining. It's very worth watching. If you have anybody in your life that runs a lot or does marathons or Spartan races or whatever, I would encourage you to send that film along to them or maybe even this episode. If you want to share it on your Instagram story, if you want to leave me a review that makes me smile and fills my heart with glee, I would not be opposed to that. I just so appreciate you taking part of your life to listen, to support my work, and to help me try to make kindness cool and make a positive difference on this planet. So thank you for you. Keep shining. And I love you. Oh, and if you want to learn more about the film or follow Sanjay on Instagram, I put a couple of things in the show notes. You can easily track that dude down, check out his old movies, all the good things. Okay, that's really it now. And I I still love you.